Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. I'm DJ Mimi. It is Monday, April 13th, 10 a.m. We just heard Democracy Now!'s daily show. Next, we'll jump into a conversation hosted by the Blue House as part of their weekly Thursday coffee and conversation hour called FICA. Last Thursday, April 9th, Shana Griffin, feminist activist, sociologist, artist, Denise Frazier, scholar and educator, Angelica Chariot, evolutionary biologist, and Aaron Chang, urban designer, led a discussion on climate change, the Anthropocene, and COVID-19. We'll get to hear each of their opening remarks that frame the larger discussion, touching on what lessons can we draw for research, policy, planning, activism, design, and art. What questions should we be asking about present-day modes and practices? Thanks to the Blue House for sharing this conversation with us. If you'd like to learn more or tune in live for their FICA on Thursdays, you can can follow at the Blue House NOLA on social media or go to thebluehousenola.com. Then at 10.30, we'll jump into Counterspin with Mike Elk on frontline worker rights and Joe Emmersberger on pandemic sanctions. Thanks for listening, and here we go. Thank you for organizing this, Erin, and thank you all for being here today. Um, Just to introduce myself a little bit, um, I'm a musician, and my dissertation was on Spanish-speaking Caribbean hip-hop and performance artists in Cuba and Brazil and their relationships to the nation state in both of those countries. Um, I am an aspiring education activist, and I care a lot about education here in New Orleans, and also an aspiring gardener. And um, I'm the assistant director of the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South, and helped um, plan and organize the Anthropocene River Campus this past November in 2019. And and there's a lot of different things I'm thinking about, and I know there's um, uh, two other wonderful people who will also present, but just to put this out out there as uh, potential topics um, that we could um, think about. Um, Just under, um, I'm thinking a lot about the underlying causes of this virus. and how the underlying causes will remain despite the fact that um, we might go back to a a type of normal that we're not really used to. Um, And a part of what makes this virus, in my opinion, so devastating is that um, our individual choices, finances, and preferences can't necessarily save us, which is like the nature of a virus. virus, This particular virus is a collective problem and um, in many ways a metaphor for a lot of underlying causes in the city, such as social inequities, historic and systemic processes of colonization and white supremacy that are deeply rooted in this region um, and in this country, and how that relates, relates to hyper-capitalism is a lot of what I'm thinking about right now. So my questions for this group are things that we can think about and not necessarily answer. I'm thinking a lot about uh, technology and automation and how many of us are surviving now because of our access to different types of technologies like Venmo or Amazon, Facebook, um, and how widespread is this uh, knowledge share in a city with such a wide chasm of inequalities. Um, I'm also thinking about income, property, um, the tourist economy here in New Orleans, um, and what radical change is required with regards to thinking about that. Um, And also another thing that I'm not hearing too much about, but that is, kind of an underlying presence maybe in a lot of our lives is how to, um, how to create and recreate intimacy in this time. Um, mental health is a big part of this experience um, and it is hard to, it's hard to determine how this will affect our um, re-entry into society um, 
and taking a toll on people. Um, how do we mitigate the sense of social and physical isolation? And um, so those are the, uh, the topics that I want to bring to the table today. Thanks, Denise. We'll take a few seconds to take notes to let that sink in a bit. Hi, I'm Jalagat Chiruyat. Um, some people know me by Dorothy. Um, it's my name also, but I prefer to go by Jalagat. I am a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Tulane. My focus is on plants, uh, plant biology, plants and human interaction. So how we've inter we interact with plants every day, just like having a cup of coffee in the morning, but also thinking about where did that coffee come from, how it has impacted societies, economic, political, religious, and so on. And so you look at all the different plants that we interact with and apply that perspective, how plants, just by adding a parsley into soup in the kitchen can draw people out of the rest of the house to think about what, smell, what is smelling so good. I also use uh, teach entomology and um, just the general entomology, but also I focus on insect and human interactions. So how humans and insects have interacted. When we look at pests, we can also look at beneficial insects. And you know, looking at this time, we can even think more about the shortage of food during a pandemic and how we can rely on insects as a source of food. Um, the questions that I'm bringing in today that I've been really thinking about has been one, um, the decline in biodiversity has driven and in, you know, has created this um, increase in zoonotic diseases. And that is generally, you know, when you look at that, you have the correlation between a decline in biodiversity with increased deforestation and increased human population. And also that would mean, you know, you look at that as a big picture under the climate change. Um, we can look at overpopulation. Uh, there was an image that was shared about, you know, what it means to social isolate in America would mean to a community in India and because of the space and how much, you know, what's the population within that area and what it means to uh, social isolate in a, or physically distance, distance in a, during a pandemic. Um, another interest that I have is um, how, you know, thinking for myself, the first thing I thought is I need to grow my own food. You know, my garden is not going to sufficiently provide, but if I'm able to plant, if we have community gardens, if we have our own backyard gardens, how much um, would we decrease the, or the traffic that goes to the grocery store at this time? Because we don't have to go to the grocery store to get everything that we need. Um, so going back to this, being able to produce our own food, and that can also lead to an intimacy with neighbors where you're able to converse around what you're planting, what you're harvesting, and so on, especially during this time when you have to, you're um, physically distancing from others. Um, and then the last one is that, you know, with 
this kind of, for example, New Orleans, um, if you've had a chance to go to downtown in the morning, if you live here, is to look at how many rats are in the street. Um, and there are quite a few. Um, and I went on a run this morning to just scout out. I call it my rat, my rat run. And to see how many rats are in the street. And you will really, within a block, you'll see, you know, five, four to five rats that are just hanging out and they don't even move um, when we're, you know, when I run up and it's just like, hey, we're hanging out, you keep running. Uh, but it's just that, you know, this is flushing out a lot of pests and it's not just the rat, you know, the rats are in the street, but also it's going to, they're going to move out of those habitats and move into neighborhoods because of food shortage um, as well. And what does that mean with diseases that they carry? and they can transmit. I am based here in New Orleans. I am a feminist activist, an independent researcher, an applied sociologist and artist. Um, my practice is primarily research-based and interdisciplinary. I work across several fields, including sociology, geography, Black feminist thought, socially engaged art, and um, land use planning, all of which is within movements around um, challenging urban displacement, carcerality, reproductive control, and gender-based violence. I am the Associate Director of Antenna, which is a um, New Orleans-based multidisciplinary arts um, and literary organization. I'm also the founder of Displace, which is a multidisciplinary um, public history project that examines the displacement of Black people um, in New Orleans from its formation up into this current moment. Um, I have, in that process, I've become a displacement, I should say displacements with an S, experts. I'm also the founder of Punctuate, which is a newly formed um, Black feminist research art and activist initiative um, that's focused on foregrounding the embodied aesthetics of Black feminist thought. Um, and as, as we are thinking about the different ways in which people, Black people, especially Black women and girls, experience everyday violence um, associated with housing policies, carcerality, reproductive control, and climate change. I have been thinking about a lot of things um, um, all at once. And um, some days it feels overwhelming, and some days is the way we should be all thinking about this and how. Um, one, multiple forms of inequality exist because of others and one subsides the other and they all kind of converge. And unfortunately, we see these convergence, um, it explodes. Um, and we know, as you mentioned, Denise, um, who are the folks who are most likely to be, um, who are most likely vulnerable and also who are most likely um, to die. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about violence. I am looking at um, viewing um, and, and as we're watching the impact of an epidemic, pandemic, I'm sorry, pandemic unfold, I'm looking at this through the lens of violence. Violence um, as it relates to um, violence in general, also the violence of surveillance, um, disposability, criminalization, um, technology, um, as well as policing um, and how that is manifest in um, when we think about immigration, when we're thinking about um, prisons, housing, healthcare, um, our proximity uh, to uh, polluting environments, 
Um, and what does that mean for the broader ecosystem in which we live? Um, this is all informed by my direct experience organizing, um, collaborating with, and um, building community-based institutions um, in the context of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, um, the housing crisis and, and economic crisis from 12 years ago. And I am watching as um, how people are responding, how we also are making, we're stumbling in the same way, we're making some of the same mistakes. And it's also just exposing the various ways in which the infrastructure that is needed, especially progressive um, alternative uh, is not there. Um, and because of the size of the, um, I would say our country, um, it makes it hard to implement uh, some of the amazing things that we are often inspired by, uh, some community-based projects that may not be replicated in other parts of the country. Um, you know, even the reference to Cuba, I feel like there's so many amazing examples um, of ways in which people have resisted and um, uh, survived. Um, but also this assumption, I guess I'm challenged by the assumption that, you know, when I hear people say we've never experienced this before, and I was like, we have. And many people around the world have experienced pandemics before, and we're not looking to them um, in the ways in which they have um, survived through it and the lessons they've learned. And so when I'm thinking about um, people in the Congo, in West Africa, also in Haiti, um, think about the people of the Gulf region, Gulf region here. And so I feel like we know what it means to experience an economic crisis. We had one 12 years ago. We know what it means to um, the weight of a housing crisis on our shoulders. Um, we experienced that. Um, and we know what it means when communities are blamed um, by, for virtual being who they are. And so race, blackness should be a pre-existing condition um, as relates to this pandemic and for us to be able to project who's gonna die because of these various underlying um, um, causes that exist, causes that was not created by the people themselves. And so I'm thinking about a lot. Um, I am really concerned about surveillance at the moment um, and technology. Um, when I um, do the work I do around displacement, I'm very conscious of the ways in which technology changed the landscape in the United States um, in, this, this, in this colonial project. Um, and thinking about the theft of indigenous land and also the um, brutality of racial slavery uh, and the need for um, people to work the land and how these technological advances in, the early, in New Orleans early history, but also in the country's um, early history as relates to the steamboat, the cotton gin, and the cultivation of sugar, and how that really transformed and also made more people um, disposable um, for the production of, production of products for profit. And I'm thinking about the technological advances that exist right now and what we are relying on to communicate and we're not thinking about those unintended consequences. So we're together via Zoom, which is a great platform, but it's not a great platform depending on the content of the subject matter that you are discussing and the ways in which our browsing history, our buying history, our name, our address, all of our personal information is being gathered, um, database, and also can be made available to law enforcement. Um, after our federal government requested from Zoom, they would literally just turn it over. No, we don't have any say into that. And so I think we have to be very cautious about the ways in which we are um, um, shifting from uh, what we have come to know as our normal 
shifting everything online. Everything can shift and also what are the consequences. And lastly, I would say is, um, oh, there's a lot, um, is the ways in which we have to be very vigilant and paying attention um, to what is occurring nationally and also what is occurring out, um, coming from the White House. I feel like many of us are distracted about our everyday survival and not thinking about the collective whole and also is not paying attention to what our government is doing um, in the shadows. And Hurricane Katrina um, has a lot to teach us uh, in terms of what we should be paying attention to. Um, for example, in 2006, when over um, 500,000 people were still displaced from the region, um, Louisiana legislators made it a priority to um, uh, restrict women's reproductive capabilities to terminate pregnancies. And so in 2006, we passed laws, which called trigger laws, to make it's basically after the Supreme Court overturned World Races Wade, um, abortions would automatically be illegal in the state of Louisiana. Of course, if we were talking about post-Katrina reality, over 500,000 people are displaced from their homes. Why is the control of women's reproductive capabilities a priority? And we're seeing that play itself out right now. The same is true um, with Katrina as it relates to environmental regulations um, uh, uh, was eased uh, and reinforcement was pulled back. We're seeing that un uh, unfold right now as well. Uh, we also know about the various ways in which people were criminalized. I mean, even this idea of wearing masks out in public, in one sense, we all have a shared responsibility. In another sense, it also can lead to a greater criminalization and policing of certain members of our community. We know people of color walking around in public who can't afford, can't access masks, but are wearing bandanas, can be misinterpreted as someone trying to rob them. Or, you know, the things that can be justified in the name of public health, uh, whether we're talking about a police state, checkpoints, curfews, um, what is this, martial law. I feel like there's so much at play and so many things that can be um, justified in the name of public health. We have to just be very... Um, conscious of what's going on and we have to constantly push back and challenge while simultaneously um, organizing and creating and exploring different possibilities of ways of engaging um, and, you know, uh, uh, creatively um, building a type of institutions um, that should exist and how can we start that work now. So I'll stop there because I'm thinking about a lot of things at the moment. So uh, my name is Aaron Chang. Again, I'm a manager at the Blue House. I'm with Tanya James, a co-lead of Wada Leaders Institute, and I work as an urban designer and planner and also an educator. Um, and one, one area of focus is urban water management and resilience planning. Um, I'm going to share two, two, I guess, one is an insight and the second is a question or provocation that I think might be a way to connect some of the things that have come up. So the first I'll share real quick is, uh, can you all see that? I'm just sharing a screen. Um, this is something in conversations with Tanya and other uh, folks working on water issues, something that's just popped up um, as I think at the least it's interesting and I think there's a lot more to be learned and, and, and explored. Um, at this point in time, I think it's safe to say that the general public has a, a 
awareness and an understanding of what flattening the curve means. And we've seen it in every news outlet. We've seen it in briefings by political leaders. And it's used, it's this kind of abstraction, it's this diagram that takes a public health guideline and explains to the public that uh, we need to reduce the number of infections in order to keep uh, the number of infections below the, the capacity of our healthcare system, right? So that dashed line is the healthcare system capacity, and then, uh, and then we change the peak and the duration of, uh, of the outbreak to not max out our systems. Um, so the observation is simply that this is exactly the same diagram that we use for talking about pump stations and reducing in New Orleans, uh, reducing the flow of water from our neighborhoods to our pump stations. And, uh, and it's identical in a lot of different ways. So system capacity, imagine that's the capacity of our city's entire pump station network or for a particular catchment area, like let's say pump station one, you're similarly, when it rains and water hits concrete and asphalt, if all of it rushes to the pump station at one time, then you overwhelm the capacity of that pump and a flooding ensues. Um, if you're able to flatten that curve by slowing the flow of water, uh, it's the same diagram. You can uh, change the curve in, 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 uh, in hydrology, in water management, you talk about, uh, you, talk, you call it hydrograph. So the runoff curve, um, you can adjust it, you can change it so we don't max out the capacity of our infrastructural system. So um, a lot follows from that, but I just wanted to share that. And we'll share more about this on the Water Leaders website in the weeks ahead. Um, all right, so that's one thing. The other thing is, um, again, there's so many ways in which we can talk about the environment, climate change, climate change, um, and all the social conditions and factors that are uh, interrelated. The Seeing as we are on a Zoom call and we're staring into these cameras and connecting in this way, I think it might be useful to have a kind of meta discussion about this technology that we're using and how it relates to all these other factors. So Denise talked about uh, intimacy, how to create that and recreate that. Um, you also talked about technology and automation. Um, Jelagat, you talked about space, space between populations. And of course, we overcome that space and that distance through this technology. And then Shana, you talked about technology in relation to surveillance and the ways in which data is shared and captured and who has use and control of that data. And so my, my observation here is this. One, in the present day, when we think about the environment and climate change, I think it's readily apparent that, dis, that we live at a particular moment in time when distance means very little. Globalization is possible because we have a massive subsidy where fossil fuels make it possible to ally distance. So we know that it's cheaper to take raw materials from one hemisphere to ship it to the other hemisphere, to ship raw goods or recycled recyclables from the US to China for processing and then spinning into fleece 
or some other product and to ship it back than it is to manufacture here locally. Um, and so that's a one very simple example of how we've made, we live at a point where economically distance almost doesn't matter. And this relates to everything. This relates to how we eat. So the fact that we can go to a supermarket and buy food from every, uh, almost every continent uh, and, and it's still cheaper than growing the food, the food locally. Um, it relates to our architecture. So, um, so we can ship materials from anywhere in the world. You can ship green roof components from Germany. You can ship lumber from South America. Uh, and so we don't have to build with locally sourced materials. And it's in fact, economically often not feasible to do so. Um, it has to do with the, the clothing that we wear. And so the globalization um, is made possible through the massive expenditure of fossil fuels. Shipping is extremely cheap. And that relates to public health too. Global travel um, has aided the spread of this virus. And so we have this rapid dissemination of, uh, of viral activity across the entire globe in just a few short months. We sit on this Zoom call and I think the one thing I want to put out on the table is that we tend to act as if this distance that we're overcoming is uh, negligible, that there's So I guess what I'm trying to extend is not just a critique of Zoom calls in terms of how it makes us feel and, and interacting with each other through a screen, but that distance continues to matter even in a digital world that when we go online, this isn't frictionless, that at the end of the day, there's still an environmental cost to what it takes to transmit data. And that this is still, from me to each of you, there's still a bridging of distance that requires energy, that this is similarly aided, abetted, and made possible through the expenditure of fossil fuels. And so, the transmission itself of data, but then this data, as we're doing this, Zoom is recording this, putting it on the cloud, which is connected to real physical servers somewhere in the world, where energy is being constantly expended and, uh, and algorithms are transcribing the things I'm saying right now and turning that into new forms of data, and all that will be made available to us. And, and so why does this matter? I think, one, there are real environmental costs to bridging distance in this way that we don't reckon with because fossil fuels are still tremendously uh, subsidized and costs are externalized. Two, there are social and political costs to this. What are the systems that are capable of transmitting data with this rapidity and at this scale where we can be talking to somebody from Portland, somebody from Massachusetts, almost instantaneously, uh, and which organizations, which institutions have the capacity to manage data at this global scale. And the reason why I think this is important is because sitting in on calls over the last few weeks when people are talking about uh, politics, when, uh, when 
in in the last couple of decades, I think something that comes up a lot is globalization. It hurts labors in this way. It has these impacts in terms of environmental pollution, where certain impacts are displaced to different populations. A kind of rejoinder that I often hear from progressive movements is that we can also harness these global communications platforms to, to galvanize people at an international scale, that we similarly have the capacity to connect with people and build solidarity across distance, across uh, national borders. And I think that is true, but I think it's also a little bit problematic because um, it doesn't challenge, I, I don't think it's enough. I don't think it challenges the basic premises of how data spreads and what does it mean to archive data at a local versus global level? What does it mean to be able to communicate locally versus globally? Um, what does it mean to build coalitions? What does it mean to make decisions if you are uh, a Marxist and you're looking for an international movement, an order of some kind? And so I, I think all I'm trying to say here is that distance matters, scale and geography matters. And just as we know that the scale of a food production system, at some point it doesn't, um, at some point a form of architecture is no longer relevant beyond a certain geographic confine. Um, the ecology, the climate changes depending on distance. So we operate in a globalized society where we can ignore that distance. And my contention here is that there's something to be gained here politically and environmentally from just dealing with this very tangible uh, reality of bridging distance through these online forms and trying to wrestle with the environmental costs of that, which I think is real, but it's very easy to ignore. And so I'm contributing to that. I'm saying, let's shift this online. Um, we almost can't see any other way. That almost seems to be all we've got. Um, but I would argue that that's not enough. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite U.S. media would have you know they celebrate and appreciate frontline workers. But what happens when those workers try and speak for themselves, try to get past the hero label and demand conditions that don't require them to choose heroically between going to work and staying safe and healthy. What would it look like to call corporate media's bluff on their sudden serious respect for working people who didn't start being important because there's a contagious disease going around? We'll talk about action for workers' rights and why you might not be hearing about it with Mike Elk, senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report. Also on the show, 
there's a lot going on, and it's hard to stay focused on all of it. But the U.S. has an inward and an outward face. And even as we are now justifiably focused on what's going on within our borders, we're still accountable for what's being done in our name outside of them. And that includes, among other things, devastating economic sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, ensuring that those countries, because they are designated official enemies, will have a harder time protecting their citizens from the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll talk about that with writer Joe Emmersberger. That's all coming up, but first, a super quick look back at some recent press. 21-year-old Kentucky college student Ashley Lawrence is making face masks, as are a lot of people. But hers have a clear plastic window in them because many deaf and hard-of-hearing people need to see lips in order to communicate. A lot of people are just not being thought of. Lawrence told Lexington NBC affiliate Lex18, and truer words were never spoken. She isn't charging for the masks because she says, I think if you need them, then you need them. Just a reminder, as you read news media, to consider who is not being thought of, ask why not, and think of them. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. U.S. news media right now are all about saluting or celebrating frontline workers, the heroes of the coronavirus pandemic. That's great, but how deep does it go? Does it translate to ongoing awareness or substantive support for workers' right to health and safety, even when no pandemic is raging? And when workers act for themselves in an organized way, as thousands are doing right now across the country, well, then they stop being people and become labor and evidently move to a different, less friendly place in the elite media mind. There is no real labor beat as there once was in corporate media, and few journalists who see workers as their story or see stories through workers' eyes day in and day out. We're joined now by one who does. Mike Elk is senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report, online at paydayreport.com. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mike Elk. It's great as always to be on your show, Janine. Well, straight information, first of all, because I don't actually know that folks who aren't actively seeking it out are going to be hearing it. So can you just give listeners an idea of what worker actions are happening right now around the country? And to what extent do they fit with the maybe textbook understanding of organized labor? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the largest strike wave that we've seen in any period. On my website, paydayreport.com, we've created a strike tracker. And in the last month, there have been over 50 Wildcat strikes. Last year was a record year for strikes. There were the most strikes in 15 years, and there weren't 50 strikes. So to see this many strikes in less than a month says that something fundamentally is changing in the country. And that's a big, big deal, especially with everything that's happening 
around the debate about how do we rebuild society in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So when you say wildcat strikes, just for folks who don't know, how does that differ? What kind of situation does that put workers in? What does that mean? Well, a wildcat strike means that workers are walking off the job illegally. Uh, Under labor law, you can only walk off the job when your contract has expired. In a wildcat strike, though, workers simply say no, and they take a big risk. Unions can be sued. In some places, union leaders in the public sector can even be thrown in jail. So workers are literally risking their jobs with no legal protections to do this. But not many people are getting fired right now. And a big reason for that is that frontline essential workers are seen as heroes. And that type of energy is really going to change the conversation. Nobody really thought of grocery store workers as heroes before this. Now every chain is giving grocery store workers a $2 an hour raise. And after this is over, if grocery workers start going on strike, people are going to remember that. And workers are going to remember the power and the strikes of this moment. So while this is a really horrific, terrible moment full of death, it's an exciting moment where workers are taking power back. Absolutely. Well, I just need to ask you, what's your sense of what corporate media, elite media, are missing or getting wrong when they talk about these heroic workers, when these workers take power into their own hands? Well, often they're not recognizing the organization involved in a lot of these efforts. In some places, you know, it'll happen that 20 or 30 workers call out sick or workers simply walk off the job. But they're not recognizing how much organizing goes into that. And some of that could be caused by the fact that reporters are doing a lot of this over the phone and not actually going out and sitting down with folks. And also that, you know, a lot of reporters are slammed. But the bigger issue is that all of a sudden, every reporter in this country is a labor reporter. Mm -hmm. Right. All of a sudden. And most people don't have a lot of experience covering that. Uh, And it's showing in some of the reporting. Yeah, I I actually wanted to ask you about that because reporters need sources, of course. They need people to go on the record. And one thing that I hope is coming through in a lasting way is how difficult it is for workers, even status, high-status workers like doctors or Navy captains, you know, how hard it is made for them to speak out and to talk about the conditions that they deal with. That's a factor for journalists. And yet you manage to get around it. You know, you manage to get a story without, I think, asking someone to endanger themselves. So it really is about, I guess, putting in that work beforehand, right? It's an issue of trust. You know, people say, how does a small outlet like Payday Report get people to talk. You know, I've been covering the labor movement for 12 years now. My father's a labor leader. I was a shop steward as well. And people know my reputation. So workers know they can trust me. But that trust isn't always so easy to build. A lot of times, you know, one of my girlfriends joked that being a labor reporter was like being in the mob because I was always calling up people asking them to vouch for me. (laughs) And this is true. And it's a big issue that most workers are really scared to talk to the press, especially right now, when people are scared about how they're going to keep their jobs. Well, and folks will have heard about, for example, the Amazon worker who tried to speak up and they leaked their PR document in which they laid out exactly how they were going to smear him and to make him the face of 
the labor and union movement and talk about how he wasn't very articulate, which, you know, he's an African-American man. So the power differential between what the owners can bring to bear against workers, they got a much easier slide in the media than the workers themselves do. And journalists have to work to shift that balance. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, you know, I was fired in a high profile union drive uh, at Politico. And, you know, some companies aren't afraid of doing that. You know, people that head some of these big companies, all they care about is money. And if firing someone's going to save them money, they might do it. But what we're seeing is a lot of these products are consumer brands, Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods. Right. And people are going to remember this. And I think alternatives might start emerging to some of this as a result. I mean, Amazon has been particularly dirty. And I think we have to put those alternatives in front of folks. I think there can be a sense that it's enough to just feel bad about it, um, and that's not enough. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to just call out, tell folks what summer things. I know that there's folks in Pittsburgh. I know that there's meat packers in Chicago. I know there's folks all around the country doing that risky thing of, of walking out. What are just some of the stories that you think folks should find out about? Well, I was just reading about a nursing home strike in Riverside, California, and there was a nursing home strike in Pittsburgh the other day. And nursing home workers are some of the most abused workers in the country. Really low pay, very dangerous situations often. And now a lot of nursing home workers are going on strike because they don't have working conditions. The other thing that's big is meatpacking workers. You know, meat packers work shoulder to shoulder and they all touch the same pieces of meat all day long. And it's easy in that environment for disease to spread. I mean, we just see uh, Albany, Georgia, a city of 70,000, has the fourth fastest community spread of any city in the country. And that's a city that meatpacking is the biggest employer in town. Two meatpackers that have died, they think, you know, it's linked to that. If you look at Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there have been 300 positive tests for COVID in that town. 80 of them are workers at the meatpacking plant. So we're really seeing the meat packers and nursing assistants are really the folks that are the most exposed and are the biggest sites of mass outbreaks. You know, we're looking at nursing homes that 100 people in a nursing home get COVID. It's bad. And we hope, of course, that it will continue to mean something for journalists, even when we're not talking about a contagious disease. You know, the fact that the that their conditions are difficult, are precarious. It it that means they're always that way, you know. And we have to kind of we have to keep that alive, even when hopefully we come out the other side of this. Totally, I think this is starting to change the conversation, and it's going to be interesting when this ends to see where it goes. We've been speaking with Mike Elk. He's senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report online at paydayreport.com. Mike Elk, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sounds good. A lot is going on under the cover of the coronavirus, precisely what Naomi Klein is talking about with the frame's shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. 
Besides gutting environmental regulations and throwing money at overserved corporations, we see the Trump administration attempting to use the pandemic to justify existing economic sanctions on Venezuela and on Iran immiserating civilians of other sovereign countries to openly pressure them to choose a government more to the U.S.'s liking is not new, sadly. Doing it in the face of a pandemic is just further evidence, were it needed, that the cruelty is the point. Canada-based writer Joe Emmersberger has been working on this. He's written about it for FAIR.org. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Emmersberger. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, let's start with Venezuela, I guess, where readers will be now hearing that Maduro is a drug dealer or they're a narco mm-hmm. state? What What's happening in Venezuela now with regard to U.S. actions and why now? Yeah, it seems like the United States was coming under pressure, you know, with, with the coronavirus and all the fallout all over the world, the you know, pandemic. It seems like they were coming under pressure. They are coming under some pressure to at least ease, if not temporarily lift, the sanctions they've imposed on so many countries, including Venezuela. You know, I wrote a piece mentioning that the IMF rejected an emergency request by Venezuela for loans, for $5 billion loans, a special emergency-type loan they've made available to countries for help them through the coronavirus crisis. So Maduro's government in Venezuela immediately applied and got rejected very quickly by the IMF, which is typically run by the uh, United States government's Mm -hmm. Treasury Department. I mean, they have the veto for loans to uh, middle-income countries. So it seemed like shortly after that, the uh, United States reacted to the pressure to ease the sanctions, which was to double down, just basically go on the attack and put out indictments on Maduro and several other uh, former and current officials of the Venezuelan government, of Maduro's government, saying that they're involved with drug trafficking. In uh, Maduro's case itself, it said that he had a strategy of trying to flood the United States with drugs to weaken the United States, which is uh, just ludicrous. But when you demonize a country, typically in the United States, what they do is they portray the country as uh, whatever uh, leader they're after. It's not just evil, but also totally irrational so that you can believe anything about them. You know, like, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein, obviously, in that case, he was a, a brutal dictator, but he wasn't irrational. He, did, he wasn't hiding weapons of mass destruction. But they, you know, they managed to convince people that all well, these guys are against us, so therefore they're not really rational. So you can believe any allegations. In fact, what's funny, though, is that actually Venezuela would have much more uh, reason to issue indictments and charge U.S. officials because one of the people they singled out in these indictments is a general who was living in Colombia, and he just recently came up publicly saying that he was working with Guaido and U.S. advisors to try to organize some kind of armed uprising, you know, which would probably include even the assassination of Maduro. So based on that alone, Venezuela could be uh, prosecuting U.S. officials seeking and trying to extradite them to Venezuela for that. But, you know, obviously that just doesn't happen because it's all a matter of who has more firepower, not has who, who has an actual legal case, you know, that has very little to do with, <laughs> with yeah. these kind of situations. <laughs> when you get to the drug traffic allegations, too, of course, and this is just based on the DEA's own statistics, the overwhelming majority of drugs is, of course, produced in Colombia and consumed in the United States. And even if you look at even the path that it takes to get to the United States, according to the DA, there's images that Venezuela analysis and other people have published online. It shows that 
that most of the transit is even through governments that are typically aligned with the United States. So it's just another way to show how outlandish, how politically motivated the allegations against Venezuela are, because if this was a legitimate drug trafficking concern, of course, I mean, there'd be all sorts of Colombian officials and even even U.S. entities, uh, maybe officials or other entities that allow the money to get laundered and everything in the United States. The Trump administration has been so transparent in their desire for regime change, if I can say it softly, mm-hmm. in Venezuela, that it just seems like, oh, wow, now you're bringing out a drug charge? You know, it just, it, their their mm-hmm. goal is so transparent right. that one wonders why you would take any particular, you know, iteration especially seriously, and yet we have media engaging it you know i, I guess i sure. would also ask you just uh, there's there sanctions have an impact they have an impact on human beings right i mean we can't sure. forget that of course not you know it, even if everything they said about venezuela's government was true and it's not i mean venezuela is a, is a, has a democratically elected government i mean that has to be said because even from well-intentioned people sometimes you don't get pushback on that particular point because it's just been so internalized repeated so often that people just maybe give up or maybe think they have other things to say, but that's that's huge. I mean, Venezuela's government is democratic elect. That's what makes it so especially horrifying. It is as much right to call itself democratic elect as any, any country, United States, Canada, or anybody else, but it's still being openly targeted. You know, usually the United States has a, a kernel of truth. Any propaganda, there's some kind of truth at the heart of it, even if it's embroidered with lies. Like, for instance, you know, Iraq. I mean, Saddam Hussein really was a horrible dictator. That was a truth, but of course that didn't mean that everything else they said was true. And also in the case of Saddam Hussein, you know, the sanctions, you know, you had UN officials resigning, top-level UN officials resigning in the 90s, in the late 90s, you know, Hans von Spanek and David Holliday, well, for the sanctions. Because even though, yes, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, but even the most brutal dictatorship still provides essential services to its population. They still have civil servants trying to do their best to provide health care and sanitation, all the basic stuff that a government does. And if you slash the government's revenue, then you slash the government's ability to import essential things. Yeah, food, medicine, but also spare parts for things like the sewage system and electricity grid and all that stuff. So there's no such thing as reducing a government's revenue deliberately through sanction and not hurting the general population, even if the government is, like in the case of Saddam Hussein, a, a dictator, a brutal one, all that. But still, when you hurt a government's ability to buy essential products, and if you think about it, the worse the government is, the more that's going to be the case. I mean, the more likely the government's just going to transfer as much pain as it can get away with to population and spare the privileged sectors it looks after. So in the case of Venezuela, you know, Mark Weisbach and Jeffrey Sachs estimated that by the end of 2018 alone, just between 2017 and 2018, when Trump really ramped up the financial sanctions, by then they had already been linked to like 40,000 deaths. Now you can debate whether that's high or lower, but that's only till the end of 2018. Now in the beginning of 2019, they've constantly increased the severity and intensity of the sanctions, trying to make it illegal for Venezuela to sell its oil and for anyone to buy it from them. (laughs) You know, they kept ramping it up. So that is killing thousands of people. 
if there were an opposition movement in countries like Canada and the United States and Europe, demand wouldn't just be, got to stop this. Demand would actually be, hey, we got to prosecute the people involved with this. This is killing people. This is a crime. This, you know, people should be facing legal consequences for this. But it's hard enough just to get to the point where you can just tell them stop. Absolutely. And, you know, so many premises that go on question that the United States has the right to do this, to exert pressure, right. to harm the civilian population of a country and the the idea is meant to be, well, if we starve them and make them suffer enough, then they'll change their government. And that's what right. we, we want them to have a different government. I mean, it's just assumption on assumption on assumption and all of them are outrageous. Well, I wanted to ask you about Iran. You can link them together. It's also a case where People are suffering, but right. if you read U.S. media, it's all for a point, and it's just mm -hmm. hard to see what that point could be. In the case of Iran, it's a little different. They're not trying to claim that Iran needs to democratize. Uh, they're saying that Iran has a so-called uh, nuclear program that threatens the region, threatens the United States. So it's more similar to the line against Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know, but there is no nuclear weapons program. I mean, there is a nuclear energy program, uh, but... There's a country in the region that refuses to put its uh, nuclear weapons under uh, uh, international control, and that's Israel, of course. But they, you know, they came and talked about that because that's an ally; so they can do what they want. They, you know, Saudi Arabia. You know, we're Canada as well is sending arms to Saudi Arabia, United States, and, and and all sorts of military support and everything for them to commit horrific crimes in Yemen. I mean, it's, the threat to the region is, is really the the U.S. and its allies. But Iran is singled out, as everyone knows. It's been a long time regarded as a, by the United States as an enemy. And Iran also applied for the same IMF loan that Maduro recently applied for. And they took a bit longer, but it looks like it's finally been rejected because of the U.S. pressure. You know, the IMF, like I said, is basically run by the U.S., especially when it comes to making loans to uh, low- and middle-income countries. And the Europeans push back very softly, you know, when they do push back. So that's an important point, you know, the, the complicity of countries like Canada and the EU. You know, it's, it's basically a, a group of, you know, roughly 50 countries at the United States. It's, it's a minority of countries in the world, but they tend to be rich and powerful, and they, they tend to be the ones that play along with the United States and its aggression abroad. I was noticing that it seemed like a big deal that other countries were under threat of sanction from the United States still engaging in trade or still making, you know, mm -hmm. having communication with Iran, even though the United States took its exceptionalist position to say that they right. weren't allowed to do that. But it's not enough and doesn't amount to standing up to the U.S.'s bludgeoning. Right. Well, let me just ask you for final thoughts on coverage in particular that we are likely to see going forward. I mean, this narco state Venezuela thing seems to be just getting started. Who knows what media are going to do with mm -hmm. that? What should we be keeping in mind as we look at coverage of U.S. sanctions? It's always about what they say and about what they don't say. It, it, it's important for us to go back that the whole premise that I mentioned that people have, have, have not pushed back on, even well-intentioned people, in my opinion, have kind of forgotten sometimes, and might maybe even me, I've forgotten sometimes to push back on the fact that Venezuela has a democratically elected government. You know, in 2018, one of the big complaints for saying that Maduro's government wasn't legitimately elected was saying that basically two of his top rivals were disqualified. 
okay, now they were involved in multiple coup attempts and they would never have been allowed to participate and certainly have been in jail in any of their country. But it's worth remembering right now in Ecuador, for instance, Rafael Correa has been sentenced to jail for 25 years, not allowed to run for any public office in Ecuador. But that's a U.S. ally, so nobody's going to cite that as an example and say, hey, they're not a democracy. Lula da Silva in Brazil was in jail when Bolsonaro won his election. And these are countries, Brazil and Ecuador, and they're not facing an external threat like Venezuela is. So it's very important to keep in mind that the kind of so-called abuses that Venezuela is accused of are just routine stuff in countries that are allied with the United States. I mean, an even more striking example is Bolivia, where you have an outright dictatorship right now because the democratically elected president, Evo Morales, was overthrown in a coup based on a bogus electoral allegation made by a compliant OAS bureaucracy that's funded mainly by the U.S. So, you know, all these attacks on Venezuela, on Iran, they're, they're all based on the premise that what the U.S. allies do is is okay. You know, they can, they can do all sorts of things and nobody reports them in a way that says, hey, that's not right, that's not democratic, or that's actually a war crime or whatever. But if Venezuela or Iran do anything... It just gets amplified all over the place, and, and, and this idea is reinforced in people's heads that these are evil governments. I mean, we can critique the way the United States brings them down, but that it's basically they're on the right side by, by being against them. We've been speaking with writer Joe Emmersberger. You can find his piece, Media Struggle to Defend Washington's Cruelty Toward Venezuela and Iran as Coronavirus Spreads on FAIR.org. Joe Emmersberger, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for our Action Alert Network, to subscribe to our print and online publication extra, and to show support for the group if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.